Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Episode 3, A Most Ferocious Lady of the Castle. Our guest for this episode is Maura McMahon. Maura is a storyteller and a spoken word poet whose collection of Irish tales, pirate adventures, and women's sovereignty stories have entranced and empowered audiences across regional venues in New York's Hudson Valley for over 15 years. Her deeply engaging performative style is imbued with the Celtic spirit. As a character performer, Maura has embodied Grace O'Malley and the Grey Sea Hag, as well as Hippolyta, the Amazonian Queen. My family most loves seeing Maura when she appears as Mrs. Claus of the Hudson Valley. Maura McMahon comes to tell us a story of a bold, complicated Irish woman of the 17th century who shares her beautiful name. Maura, thank you so much for being here with me tonight. Oh, this is a great pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Marisa. Yeah. When I came to you and said, I would love for you to come and tell a story, I got the impression that you knew pretty quickly what story you wanted. <laughs> it was something about how you asked about what kind of story. It was stories of myth and folklore that interact with our lives and give us some context and way to figure out what's going on now based on um, stories we knew before. And I think I answered you almost immediately and said, I know exactly which one. <laughs> and I know exactly which woman I want to talk about. And the wonderful gift to me was that you knew this character and you knew this story and you have your own experience of her from your time in Ireland. And it just seemed like she was with us and saying, yes, girls, let's sit down and have a cup of tea together. hundred <laughs> percent. Yes. Mm -hmm. Divinely meant from the beginning. Exactly. So is there anything you want to say before you dive in to tell the story to give us a little bit of framing for this? You are the one who tells stories so often in life. I would defer to you and how you want to offer her to us. Oh, thank you so much. The way this story came to me is was such a beautiful act of friendship. And the first time I performed as a storyteller professionally was about 15 years ago. And my first show I did with a wonderful master storyteller named Jack McGuire. And he and I just had a wonderful time collaborating with one another. And a few weeks after the show, he sent me a gift in the mail, brown package. And in the package was a small paperback book. And the name of the book was Six Ferocious Irish Women. And I was like, oh, he, boy, did, does this guy have my number, right? He absolutely connected with me just right. And so I open up the book. It has six chapters, one for each ferocious woman. And chapter two was about a woman whose name is Maura McMahon. So in case you missed it in the intro, folks, my name is Maura McMahon. <laughs> and I was 
you know, all lit up because I'm one of those people. And, and, and I know my friend Marisa is too, and probably people who listen to this podcast, we look for signs in the universe, right? Connection to spirit and maybe uh, in particular other people on this side of the veil who may communicate with us, right? We look for these subtleties of a butterfly's wing or, or a shooting star. Well, sometimes life hands you a book and goes, oh yeah, storyteller, here's a story about Maura McMahon. Are you going to pay attention? Can you hear it? So I was in from the get and what I just found out in the first two sentences was the reason that Maura McMahon was such a part of Celtic myth and folklore was because of the great number and variety of her husbands and lovers. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Let's get to know each other. So this was really, really fun for me. I, I've carried this story with me and told it so many times in the 15 years since. And as from one Maura McMahon to the other, I have grown in, you know, I want to say grow up, but I was already grown up. I grew into her. She grew into me. And I have actually been able to use her story in, in ways that now have, I feel, have given me the bravery to tell my own story. But when she came to me, and this was in my 30s, it was just after, you know, the experience of an awful, difficult marriage had ended. I was telling stories and, and myth and folklore kinds of things. I I think in a way, because I could not tell personal stories then I've only really in the last like two years been able to start telling my own personal stories. That's, that's a huge growth, a, a huge leap for me. And at the time for me, diving into characters like her was really a way to escape, you know, storytelling was the original going to the movies was the original Netflix the original binge watching was, was this. So I think it was an escape for me, but it really wasn't because when we separate out from our daily lives into story and experience that, what it actually offers us through themes that of course repeat across different geographies and different times and gives us a way when we come back into life to understand it better, hopefully, or differently. And that's what this gift was. So without further ado, <laughs> Maura McMahon was born in Bunratty Castle in County Clare, Ireland in 1616. Her father was the Earl of Thumont. Now, Bunratty Castle today is a four-star hotel, actually. You can go stay there should you like to. And like so many stories of Irish women that I love, she was someone who had a different idea about her life and how she was going to live it than her powerful father. And so like many other stories, she gets to be a young woman and decides to leave home and marry someone of her choice instead of probably who her father would have wanted her to marry. And so she leaves the, the comfortability and safety of her father's keep and goes you know, out into the world with a man who I believe her first husband's name was Donal. And every time I think to myself, you know, I should look that up. I think it's Donal and I'm not sure. I thought to myself, you know. We're talking about Maura McMahon, who had 25, at least 25 husbands and lovers in her life. I don't know that she would remember his name, especially. So I, I just, I always think it's fine to not really remember for sure. I'm pretty sure it was Donald. She's probably pretty sure something like that. They go on, they quickly have a, a couple of children. And unfortunately, he also quickly dies of consumption. And here she is. Mora in 17th century Ireland, a single mom, not a roof over her head, unable to take care of her family. And, you know, I don't know, it, there's no information about how long she 
stayed in that situation. I, I kind of think that she probably took some time to really try to figure it out as such a strong little person. But eventually she does coalesce and return to her family and her, her father and have that moment, that, you know, humility, that moment of humbleness to say, I'll do what I need to do. And it's always hard to think about that. I was right. And you were right. And I was wrong moment, but she, she had that moment. And so her father, you know, to his credit, was never one to say, I told you so, or things like that. And actually her father, the Earl of Thumon, was a strategist. And at the moment, the McMahons of County Clare, Ireland, were in a hot debate with the O'Briens of County Clare, Ireland. And apparently in 17th century Ireland, the O'Briens and the McMahons were very often at odds with one another. And so at this particular time, they were arguing over the thing that Irish families always argued over, which was property and cattle. <laughs> and I always think of all the husbands and lovers Maura had, there was one thing she loved more than a man, and that was real estate. <laughs> and if you know Irish people, you know this to be true. So, you know, especially at this point in the story where I always kind of have that vision of, of Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind, where she has like the earth in her fist over her head. And she's like, as God is my witness, I'll never go hungry again. So I kind of feel like she had that uh, desperation of her spirit of I'm going to do whatever I need to do. And yes, here we are. So they're arguing over really this one particular property that was called Lumina and it had a 400 foot tower on it and really nothing else. And it was very strategically placed. It was a lot of land right on the edge of the Burren, all the way out to the western coast of Ireland, out to the sea. And so in terms of like strategic placement, this was a very valuable piece of land. And so that's why they were so hotly debating it. So her father says, well, actually, you're welcome back home, Maura. And you know, the O'Briens have a son who's not yet married. And so since you're back, this kind of solves a lot of problems. And how about you and Connor O'Brien wed and you go to Luminough and we'll, we'll build for you this wonderful estate manor and everybody is happy to check all the boxes. And, you know, this is what, this is what women were back then. It was, we were, you know, we were cash in hand. This was a wonderful way to settle disputes and build uh, generational wealth, et cetera. So off she goes and, you know, okay, she was going to be in it. And what ends up happening is she and Connor O'Brien fall in a really beautiful love with one another and a really deep respect for one another. And maybe that was a surprise, but when love shows up, whether you expect it or not, there it is. And you ask it to sit down and stay. And so she and Connor became a river to their people. I mean, they were, it, it was one of the, you know, the times that you hear stories, like all the crops in the fields were fertile and, you know, that the horses were multiplying and there was peace in the land. And, you know, every, every child laughed from morning till night or whatever, but they really took care of the people in their area. And that's why it was such a, a tragedy that Oliver Cromwell comes to Ireland at this time. And of course, Oliver Cromwell's blight of Ireland and, and the absolute devastation he brought to those lands were horrendous. And so his army is moving that much closer to where they are. And as they move through County Clare, because Luminoch was such a stronghold, was such a strategically beautiful spot, they were really the center of this Irish defense of this area. And they had 
built along the 400 foot tower, a grand manor. They had uh, more especially built a very large stable and had filled it with um, the finest horses in Ireland. And there's two horses in particular that were white, a pair of white horses that Cotter and Mora had ridden together and trained, you know, highly, highly trained. And so those horses and that location was very helpful to the Irish people. And so what they were doing regularly is going on nighttime raids of Cromwell's army. And Mora would very often go with Connor. I mean, they were the power couple. They were absolutely leading their people side by side. And on this one particular night after the meal was over, she did not know where Connor went. Where's Connor? Connor. And so she finds out that he went out with a small band of riders, just five of them. And the plan was to go into Cromwell's camp and try to get to the tent of the general and take him out. And of course, she was beside herself. You know, so she goes to the top of the 400 foot tower and she's looking straight out to the gate just past the stable and watching the gate and watching the gate and watching the gate. I think we've all had moments like this where someone you love is in danger and you can't get to them and you both can't wait to like hug them and love them when they return. And you're also like, I am going to kick your ass for doing this. Right. And I think there's a little bit of her that's like, you went without me, you know, like we're a team and what's, what's with that. So she's just absolutely nail biting, looking at that gate and all through the night. And finally she sees horses approach and she counts them and she sees four riders. And then she sees the fifth horse coming through the gate with a body draped over the back half of the horse and her sort of famous cry out from the top of the tower was don't you be bringing a dead man to my castle you know I think it was that kind of anger of like you better not be Mm." so anyway they they kept approaching so he's still alive and so she goes running down to greet them at the great in the great room and they carry his body in very, very gently and lay him down in front of the fire. And she holds them him there right in her lap. And he is still alive, but barely. I mean, his wounds are mortal and she knows it's going to be a long night and they put a large log on the fire and she stays all through the night, just holding him and singing him in ancient songs we can hardly even imagine today. And wept over him certainly and in the morning when the folk of the castle come in to check on her on check on him sure he has passed in the night and she lets them know and it's a very somber moment for all of them enemies at the gate their leaders passed there is mora in tears and so she looks up to her most trusted of the people who lived in the castle with them and she wipes her eyes and gets the tears off her cheeks. And she says, I need you to do something for me. And they said, of course, of course, Maura, what what you need? And she says, I need you to get out the coach and the finest horses we have. And they said, oh, okay. And she says, and I need you to get my finest gown and all my best jewelry (laughs) because I'm going to town to find myself a new husband. And they're like, wait, what? And she's, oh, yes, yes, yes. And his body is there at her feet, right? He has just passed. He hasn't even been properly buried. And she's like, I got to go. And everyone's a little dumbfounded. And of course, they're doing what she's asked them to do. And so she gets into her coach with her finery and she 
rides directly up to the garrison where Cromwell's troops are, right to the front door, brashes the new day, and she says, I'd like to speak to the person in charge. And they look out and they see her and they say, I'll be damned, I think that's Connor O'Brien's wife. And she hears them say that and she says, I, yesterday I was Connor O'Brien's wife. This morning I stand in front of you as Connor O'Brien's widow. And it's like a hush just kind of goes across the garrison because of course they knew who he was and they know that yes, he did suffer from those wounds they inflicted upon him. And they said, all right, and what can I do for you, my lady, or whatever their response was. And she says, I am proposing marriage to any one of you men who will take me. Which made a lot of jaws drop. And everyone's like, what is she just like, are you like, you're not serious. And she's like, I'm absolutely serious. So here's the moment where you think, first of all, and I say this with great personal pride in being a more McMahon myself. She was a fine looking woman, even in the middle of her life now. Okay. Like she looked pretty good. Her horses look good. She smelled great. Like the whole thing, right? She's the package. But the other thing is here, they can take that property, that castle that they have wanted. It has a 400 foot tower. You can see all the way to the coast, all the way to the water. You can see across the Bruin. It's right there along the road with the great gate all those horses in that fine stable. I mean, if they can take that property peacefully and not have to cause more death and destruction, they were like, actually, you know, like they kind of look at each other. And so one of the junior officers says, I'll take her on. And she's like, right now, let's do that. So he decides he's going to marry Mora on the spot. The deal is done. He gets in the coach. She goes back to her property with him. And she says, oh, I'm going to show you around Lemonach. And he's like, yes, like they've seen this property from afar. They don't know what it looks like up front. And she says, oh, we have all the land that goes all the way out to the sea. Come up to the, the top of my 400 foot tower and I'll show you the stretch of it. And he says, oh, okay. So they go to the top of this 400 foot tower and he's looking out and she says, oh, look at the stable over there. And he's like, yes, Mara, wow. And she says, that's filled with the finest horses in Western Ireland, hi. And she says, you see all the way out, all of our fields and how fertile they've been. And he says, oh, yeah, that's, that's really something. And she says, and can you see out to the sea? Now, I mean, they're not right on the coast. You kind of have to squint. So he's like, I don't know. And she's like, no, 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 really squint, like lean over the edge. See if you can just get, well, that man fell 400 feet all the way down to the front door of the castle in a terrible accident as his ambition just got him over the edge of that tower. Well, she says, that's too bad. But now she is a British widow and she feels that she's going to stay in her house and so are her children and she will be just fine and just safe and protected, in fact, by the British troops. Well, that plan did not actually work out accordingly because they were like, no, 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 that doesn't count. He actually, you know, you may have murdered him. We're not sure. It's a little fuzzy. So, okay, we're not going to persecute you for being a murderess, but uh, the, the marriage doesn't count. And they're still making motions now to come to her people. She says, no, 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 no. 
I will take any one of your other men. Listen, you know, it's just an accident. I really, I mean it. My offer still stands. Okay. So another man, British officer says, all right, I'll take her on. You know, like eh, I was almost there. The other guy jumped ahead, but okay. So gets in the coach after the ceremony. She takes him to Lemonash. She says, oh, okay, let me take you to the top of the tower so you can see all their property. And he goes, no, 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 sister. I'm not going to the top of the 400 foot tower. I saw this story before. No. So she says, all right, then. how about we take out the finest pair of horses in the stable and I'll take you all the way around the edge of the property. Now we're talking. He's excited. He's a horseman. And he's like, this is what I want to see because this is all mine now, right? Gimme, gimme, gimme. So we, they take the two white horses out the one that had been hers and the one that had been Connor's and they get on the horses and she is galloping around the castle and then she says oh let's go out across the fields that's right 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 she says let's go all the way out to the sea and they start galloping and he's like are you sure this is okay she says yes don't worry these are highly highly trained horses and they were and they were highly trained in Gaelic as a matter of fact and he is a British man so he's um galloping along next to her and they're going right along this big open field right along the sea and as he tries to get his horse to slow down she starts calling out to the horse in her language and all of a sudden her horse stops sharp before the cliffs and his horse just goes flying right over the western cliffs of Ireland which happened to be legendarily very steep and very sharp at the bottom full of rocks and that poor man died there on those sharp rocks on the western edge of Ireland, the poor thing. And Mora cried for three days. And those weren't pretend tears. Those were real tears because she loved that horse and she hated to see him go in such a way. But that was Connor's horse. And now the two of them were reunited on the other side, which was lovely. So she thinks, okay, I'm pretty good now, that's that's just fine. Well, it turns out the general shows up at her door and it's the same story and it's Mora. We're not really sure what happened. And she says, listen, he was your finest horseman. He told me himself, he was riding the horse. I had nothing to do with it. I have lost my horse. You should be paying me for the horse. So he says, all right, we'll give you one more try. So there's one more and he's quite a junior officer. He's like, lieutenant maybe and he is going to go live with more and he's like young he's just happy to have a woman in his bed honestly that's really what it was but he's excited about the other stuff too mostly about her though because he, he was still at that age so they get to the castle and she says all right we're gonna go to the top of the 400 foot tower now show you your land no he says no 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 i've been told do you not go to the top of the tower i know would you like to take the horses out? Well, she couldn't even, you know, she didn't even get to the part about what kind of saddle we put. No, no horses. She says, all right, then. Well, then I'll be showing you the bedchamber. And he was very, very happy about that. And this time, Mora honestly realized that she could not be involved with his life ending too certainly soon because of the situation. And, and things in Ireland were getting worse and worse every day Cromwell was there. So Fine. So she beds him. Okay. 
She does what she has to do to keep her children safe, both her children from Donald and her children from Connor. And everyone actually takes a sigh of relief when in the morning they come down from the bedchamber to have their breakfast, (laughs) that he is still alive in one piece. And thank heavens, in just a few weeks, her stomach is swelling and she is taking the child very quickly and everyone is breathing a sigh of relief. It is a British heir. Who would have thought that having a British heir in their roof would give them any measure of peace, but it did. So now she's all set. Not only has she married the British man who is an officer in the army who is keeping her lands and her horses and her children and her fields safe day after day, She has provided for them in the way that she always told Connor that she would, in the way that she only could. And in her belly is the air. Well, soon after that child was born, she's in the bedchamber with him, his favorite place, and she's lying in bed and she's not wearing anything at all. And he is shaving himself in the mirror with with a straight razor. And he has the bowl in front of him and he's rinsing it and shaving and he looks out the bedchamber window and looks out across all their lands you know the lands that stretch to the edge of the sea and he just takes the moment and he looks at her and he says Mara aren't I the luckiest man in the world and she says I you are and he says I live in this beautiful castle she says yes I know this yes I know live in a beautiful castle that was mine and he looks at he says look at our beautiful stable it's filled with the finest horses in western ireland she says hi the finest trained horses in western ireland and he says look at this all this land out to the sea she says hi and he looks at her and he says and you mora waking up next to that body day after day morning after morning what a lucky man am i and she says hi aren't you And as he's shaving, he says, you know, I'm so glad I took Connor O'Brien's life that night. Oh, well, didn't the air just chill in that room? Because now she knows it was his hand that had taken her true love. Well, it must have been a slippery day, maybe from all her tears, because the story goes that he slipped soon after those words left his mouth and he slipped right on the sharp razor that had been shaving him. And that poor man slashed his neck and bled out all over her castle, Lemina. And she was a proper British widow, wasn't she? She gave him a proper British burial, actually sent him back across the sea to London for the queen to take him into her own decisions. And finally, finally, Maura was able to live sovereign in her castle with her new child who would be raised to think he was Irish even though his blood was British, but his blood had saved his brothers. And that was the thing that had mattered. Now over the uh, next two or three years, actually Cromwell's situation fell to pieces The British kind of left the Irish alone for a particular amount of time, long enough for some of the old traditions to come back, thankfully. And when they were left to their own devices, the Irish people took to something that was called hand fasting. 
And I love this part of Celtic law because I feel like as a, in my modern day mind from 2021, I think, wasn't this very wise and clever of them? And so a lot of people don't know. Hand fasting would be this. Two people decide they're going to be committed to one another and they would come together in ceremony and declare that. And what they would say is they would give a course of one year to see how everything was going to figure out. Now, really for younger people, this was probably more of a fertility promise because what you would hope is that within that first year, both of the people would be fertile and a baby would come. And this kind of gave a man an out if the woman wasn't going to be able to have his children. So that's actually, I think, what it was all about. But isn't it nice to think that they were just going to see if everybody got along very well and the chemistry was right. And if they had separated within the first year, going back to land and cattle, if you had said, if you separated within that first year, everyone keeps what they had before. You keep your land, you keep your cattle, and all of the real estate stays with its proper owner. However, if you stay with each other more than a year and a day, then this is a proper union that everyone is doing with full information and authorization. And you might still separate later on, that they were aware that that could happen. But if that happened at that later part, everything would be split in half, which is really kind of what we do now. So this was a very interesting thing. And the old ways came back now that the British were gone and hand fasting returns. And Mora decides this is a terrific idea because she hasn't really had anyone that she really, of her choice for a very, very long time, really. So she decides that she will take a lover and she takes this lover into her home, into this beautiful bedchamber, into this beautiful house that sits along the, the land on the coast of Ireland and, and reaches out to the sea. And doesn't that man who she takes as a lover enjoy the most amazing year of his life? And on their anniversary, she would wake in the morning and roll over and say, Oh, my darling, what a wonderful year. It's been 365 days of riding our horses and dining on beautiful food and sitting by the fire and sharing stories and songs. And hasn't it been lovely? And I said, ah, yeah. And she'd say, yeah, it's a shame you have to leave at the end of the day. I'm this poor man. What are you talking about? And she says, oh, yeah, my servants have already packed your things. They're out of the gate. I wish you all the very best. Thank you very much. Good night, my darling. And so every year she would just choose a new man and have a wonderful year with him and then set him apart. And the reason for this was because her not having a roof over your head for those years, I mean, that sinks in, that gets to you in a way. And then to keep that roof over your head and your children's head and doing whatever you need to do. She did not want to jeopardize that ever again with any man as much as she loved having them beside her when she woke up in the morning. Now, what ends up happening at the end of her life is her son, who is the British son, was able to be a landowner. And he built this wonderful castle called the Drolin Castle, which is a five-star hotel today. So see, in one generation, they earn a star. You know, I'm a hospitality person, so it's important to me. And that's actually where Maura dies. She dies in Dromolin Castle, advanced in her years. And I don't know what she dies of, but I will tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, she did not die of boredom. <laughs> 
that is my story. Of course, you may know this story as Maura Rua. And that's sort of how she is known in that part of Ireland because of her red hair and sort of her fiery spirit, of course, that went with it. And was she terrible and was she a murderess? And I think everyone sort of giggled about it because the people that she was known to have murdered were British invaders. And so there wasn't too much attention really paid to that violent part of her story. And she really never had, oh yes, once she had blood on her hands, but you know what I mean? It wasn't, they weren't so gruesome. They were understandable. And I do like to let people know also, because the love that she had with Connor was very true. She did arrange for him to be interred. I believe he's at Ennis Friary. There's a tomb there of Connor O'Brien and a beautiful carving. And there's an altar in that cathedral. And it's the McMahon's tomb. And that has a connection to her family. I believe that was there before her time. And so she really did honor him and love him. He was the one she lost. He was the, the part of her heart that had broken. But she is certainly a lot of fun to tell. And um, different times in my life, I think different parts of her story have been, you know, kind of the crackly parts to me, the ones that I love. And the tenderness of her story, I think, took me a long time to come to. I, you know, and the the fun part of her having all these lovers was kind of is kind of silly and and the the murdering <laughs> is kind of fun. But I feel like over the time, the course of my life that my lived experience that's been one that has called for resiliency. I think about her in that way of like, do what you got to do, man. Do what you got to do and get through what you have to and know where your priorities are and take care of yourself and your kids and and all those kinds of things. And you know, not to dismiss some of the more gruesome parts of that story. But I feel like there is such a vulnerability that even in our modern day lives, we can encounter by hearing her tale. Yeah. Oh, well, first, thank you. Thank you so much, Maura, for taking us on that adventure, that journey, that oh, just an encounter with a woman whose life was so rich and so well-lived despite all of its difficulties and tragedies. There's that saying of, you know, she lived until she died. And one can only <laughs> assume that that was Morarua to the nth degree, right? That that was exactly who she was. Yeah. You know, what strikes me of all the pieces, but I, I feel like I'm going to start here, is this idea of, yes, and thinking about like the gruesome parts, right? But in the sense that, you know, she was her own kind of warrior queen, albeit a thousand years after Maeve and the other queens, we may find it a little easier to celebrate because it's this is a little closer to our modern day. But, you know, there are ways in which a man certainly would have been heralded for having taken out a British officer. And she was kind of doing her part for the war effort in certain ways. Take it to the, the World War II generation, perhaps. That mm-hmm. was her way of fighting back against the man. Not that we want to continue our, our divisions between nations, but it's deeply bred into the land of Ireland in terms of how you deal with invaders and what you do to take care of your own. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, all of it as, as a young woman, you know, that eating crow moment of going back to your parents and saying, I thought I knew, I thought I knew a lot about the world, but you were right. I, you know, identify with that sometimes. 
definitely her resilience of I'll never go hungry again kind of moment I've connected to at different times Mm. waiting at the tower and sort of being angry at someone for doing something brave that put them in danger I'm at the part of my life now I think where I'm where she was of thinking about your suitors as companionship like those uh local Irishmen the lucky ones that had the year with her at the end it's like it wasn't about building me a castle or giving me children or it's just like could you just be a good companion to me and and make sure you're not putting a liability on anything in my life that's kind of where I am now but but there's also been a very recent conversation I've had with someone that came about by sharing the story that I wanted to bring into your podcast, knowing the topics that I thought was fascinating. So you've been in some storytelling places with me and have heard some of the the poems and stories I tell. And, And I think when they all come out at once, when I'm meeting someone for the first time and they're sort of in, in a place where I'm sharing my, my gifts, let's call them with someone, when you have them all at once, like quickly, what I realized is, and I'm sure you know this, but I guess I just didn't have the awareness myself. A lot of my stories have really strong female characters, like really imposing female characters. And that comes out. And I know that's because I needed to plug into that power and get that feeling from it. But certainly I have been told <laughs> in recent years that I'm, I can be a little intimidating to people in terms of that sovereign woman power. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) I'm okay with that. But here's the thing. Here's how it was communicated to me. I had shared this story with um, someone who I was getting to know. We were sort of getting a little comfortable with each other and and maybe intimate with each other. And so he says to me one night, he says, you know, Maura, how about I come by tomorrow and you're going to ask me to come up to the tower the 400 foot tower. And I'm going to say no. And you're going to come down and meet me at the door. How about that? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. And, and so here's what I thought, because, you know, he's a middle-aged man. This is a middle-aged man really saying to me, I'm a little, I'm a little intimidated mm-hmm. and I'm feeling it's a little risky for me. So mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of play it safe. And could you meet me in the middle, could you meet me in a place that feels safe and can we take it from right, there? Right, right. But, but that middle-aged man wasn't going to be able to use that emotional language with me. <laughs> and instead, in a really beautiful way of saying, all right, she's a storyteller. I have to say this in a way she'll understand yeah. and, and get me, which was just brilliant. This is what he said. You know, he used the architecture of the story to say, you're up there throwing men off, off the side and, you know, throwing them out to sea. And can I just, is it okay if I'm just here? And can you just be here with me? And um, that was just lovely. And I thought, oh, how else can I use this story to communicate other things? Or can you use those devices of big feelings? Because there's a lot of different feelings to unpack in this story. And so I'm, I'm sure I'll find other ways to integrate this into conversations that might otherwise be difficult to have and use that construct as a way for me to hear it in a way that I will be able to really respond in a proper way. So, yeah, I so appreciate that because I feel like we often talk about, you know, stories are currency and we use stories to as our vehicles to communicate and express what's deepest and hardest to say. And sometimes that's easy to say, but you told us a story of using a story that makes it real, makes it more real that <laughs> stories work in that way, which I just yeah. find so beautiful and remarkable. And 
it does also say, right, look in a partner, whoever they may be, in conversation or in romance, are they a good enough listener that they're hearing the story and picking up on those pieces and saying, oh, I see myself in your story. They could see themselves in your larger story. It seems like a beautiful, if not a test, at least a, okay, I'll open the door when I come downstairs. (laughs) He was like, if I jump into her story, I'm going to die. <laughs> I am in danger. I should run. Right. I think it's probably more accurate, but no, but yeah. it was, you know, but I had to stay there and say, I said, you know, you know, that story's not about me. And he's like, oh, the one about Maura McMahon, Maura McMahon. And, you know, I'm like, right, 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 right. But that's not me. And then, yeah. you know, you have to say, I've been carrying this long enough and telling it long enough. There's a lot of me in there and it's really recognizable sister. And you just got to deal with it. But anyway, it's always a really fun one to share. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, when I first heard that story, can I tell you how I first encountered Maura? Yeah. So I was a junior in college studying abroad in Galway and there was a tour bus that would go from Galway out to the Cliffs of Moor, all through the burn. And there was a man named Desmond who was about five foot nothing and had the strongest accent you would ever hear. And you know that all the other American tourists would pretty much come home and say, oh, my God, I met a real life leprechaun, you know. And <laughs> so Desmond had a soft spot for his car of village girls. Now, we lived in this. It was a, you know dorm community essentially just up from the university and to him we were all the same girl and he would just allow all of us to ride for free i love my car of village girls and he and he you know it's my <laughs> my friend was maureen and i was marisa marisa you know he just he made it he made it sound like i was like from the riviera which was brilliant and would take us on this road we went i mean we went many times for free. He never charged. I brought my mother and my grandmother and my great aunt. Oh my and he's like, I'd never charge anyone from car village. I'm like, there's hundreds of students who live here. So I don't know how the bus tour company existed, but we always seem to be the only ones who picked up that day. And so the bus would go by there and he would tell the story in a very abbreviated tone. In the version I heard, it was as if she had murdered all 25 of them. So I so deeply appreciate <laughs> getting the other sides of Mora that she was not just you know, in a way, it almost sounded like she might have been some sort of evil sorceress who was like, you know, ensorcelling these men and tossing them all off the roof over and over. So I'm deeply grateful to get the whole story. But when my mother came with us on this tour, for some, you know, redheads have this thing where are we that fiery personality or are we not? And there's that sense of what is the bluster and the presentation and what is the reality? And it's always somewhere in between, but it's fun to say, oh, I might identify with that story. So I looked at her almost aspirationally to think about, well, how could I potentially use my power? My mother started calling, my my nickname growing up was Sessa. That's how what I named myself when I was as soon as I could talk. And so I became Sessarua for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's my, it in fact is an Instagram account I rarely use is called Sessarua because my mother called me that after hearing Mora's story when I'm 20. And it was as if we were playing that game of, you know, young feminist discovering that the boys of Boston College were a bunch of bloody bastards and had very little interest. <laughs> What would it be like to be that kind of woman? And do I 
have to be? Do I get to be? Is that what's required? Would that be more fun? And it became this, it was a joke at the time, but I remember always, and I've never really thought of it this way before, that there was also that little level of discomfort of, do I have to be bloodthirsty in order to be the heroine? And so just again, to say thank you for giving my 20-year-old self that chance to recognize that there's also romance and companionship and loss and tenderness on the other side of that calculating bloodthirsty, brutal warrior queen. So <laughs> I'm on a tour bus right now, driving through the burn with my mother. That really, thank you. Yeah. And I mean, I, it's all about, and I know this is a, a word that is just all over everything you do, but it's about her sovereignty mm-hmm. and her choice. And it, when she's done with you, she's done with you. And if, if you're British and the only way out for you is death and it's death. But when there was an opportunity to just break a hand fasting contract, that's fine. She would just do that. But either way, you got to get out of my stuff. This is my space. Yeah. This is my home. And I built it with my hands and, and the hands of my true love who died. And so it's all about her choice. And I can see how your mom and you feeling feminist would think about that. And I always thought about the Ruat part also of like the blood, uh, you know, like the Macbeth blood on your hands, you can't wash off. Like, was her hair really red? Or was it just that she was covered in blood because she was so ferocious? But, uh, and that made her one of the six ferocious Irish women. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I don't even know why she's not chapter one. I don't remember what bitch is in chapter one, but I just feel a little slighted that she was chapter two. In that book. Is there any chance but, there was a pirate before her? No, I, I, I think it was Biddy Early, who's another great character oh, yeah. that you can talk about. And yeah. she's a healer. And so I think it was her, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. But. Okay. I mean, I'm sure that all six were equally glorious or in various ways, but, you know, Maura McMahon is number one in our playbooks and number one in our hearts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's such a pleasure to share. As soon as you told me about this idea for your podcast about using story in your own lives to understand your life better and to connect with characters from folklore, I was like, I know, I know which one I wanted to share. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and thank you for bringing her full humanity and your full humanity. And then of course it gives us all permission to do that, which is why this entire project exists and to reclaim her from that sort of, you know, I love that your first introduction, she got an entire chapter. My first introduction Mm -hmm. was, you know, she got the blurb on the tour and I've done the quick Google searches where you get, you know, on the terrible old website with the bad fonts around the side. Like I've read that version of it just in passing when I probably should have been doing something else. And that chance to bring what we have from history and what we know as women who have lived our own lives and had our own losses and had our own loves to combine that to make art. I'm just so deeply grateful that you brought that to us here. Thanks. In, in those weird websites, because I've read them too, they sometimes will also say that her servants had thought she was really kind of brutal and wicked. But, you know, think about her with her husband's body at her feet saying, I want you to go dress me up for the day. They probably thought she was a pretty awful person. Mm-hmm. In her mind, she was like, I'm taking care of you people. Do right. you not see what I'm doing for yes. you? So, you know, a lot of it's perspective. What what wickedness is has a lot to do with what lens you're looking through, of course. Yes. And how 
she chose to use her power and sovereignty in a moment when it was needed most, when the storytellers and the servants and those around her would have expected her to be on her knees and to be at the whims of the world and to go back to daddy's castle because that's the storyline that's handed to us across time. And the reason why strong women have stories that endure and make everyone go, wait, what? Is that it was because she made the choice that was not the normal. She did not play the fading flower and the victim. She rose in her own way. Yeah. And consorting with the enemy. And what is that really? Like I told this story one time at Garvin's in New Paltz. They have a, 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 a Gaelic night. They used to, used to be like the first Thursday of every month. And they had st- Fiddler's really cool vibe. If, when that comes back, I'm so excited. Uh, I'll sit, and I can I sit beside story. you when it comes back? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we'll have a pint. And but when I got to the part where she proposes marriage to the British and she takes like the room was about to they were pissed at me. They're like, what? She goes to the British and she marries a like, I guess they hadn't heard it any before. And they were really stunned. And I was just like, stay with me. Stay with me, people. <laughs> and then, of course, when, when they all die, you know, there was a little bit of an excitement right. in the room. Yeah. But um, but consorting with the enemy. But think about if she had just been, like you said, at her knees as I'm a widow for me, you know, take mercy on me. They wouldn't have taken mercy. These were these were ruthless, ruthless armies of, that Cromwell brought into Ireland. And they were not being kind to anybody or merciful to anybody. It was really awful. And she saw the writing on the wall. So I kind of, I kind of understand it now, but it did take me like a while of telling it to get her to that place. Right. And like not dropping parts of the story out that were, that were ugly um, to make the story nicer, but being like, not, it has a part in here. How, how does it make sense to her and her goals? And that sense that when you walk into a story that has those time, was it the, the, McMahon's and the O'Briens, who are, sound like the Hatfields mm-hmm. and the McCoys. It's also the sense of the British and the <laughs> Irish have that same sense of everybody knows the good guys and the bad guys, depending on your side. But mm-hmm. your audience is coming in with their own set ideas as to what's right, what's wrong, who who the heroine is going to be, who the hero is. And I'm sure you encounter that all the time as a storyteller, whenever you tell something that's set in a world where people seem to know right and wrong, that must be a piece that you have to encounter and play with and decide how you're going to work with or subvert. Yeah, especially historical stories. The 1600s, for whatever reason, is where I always settle. And, and it's always spotty history. So you kind of have to fill in some, but not others, you know, not other parts. But when it's really a person who lived as she did, you have to reconcile with those parts of it and figure that out. You know, if you're if you're writing a true myth story, you get to have this, you know, license over how the, the heroine's journey is going to go or what have you. But this is like, you have to reconcile those parts of it. You don't want to redeem her because she was fully human. She certainly uh, made some mistakes and and took responsibility for them, yeah. which which is also good. You know, you sit there and say she was she was all right with herself, but she at the end of her life, you know, she made her decisions and was clear about it. And I I don't think she regretted it, but but she had a a tough road to hoe. Yeah, and that's what sets mythology and folklore separate from most fairy tales right? Mm -hmm. Is that she is allowed her warts and all because she can be Mm -hmm. 
the princess and the queen and the crone and all those different pieces, the harridan and all them, you know, mixed in, because that's what makes a story real and compelling. Yeah. Well, for sure. Uh, Maura, I cannot thank you enough for being with us and bringing Maura here with Maura. It's <laughs> been an utter delight. And maybe you'll come back again someday and do this again. Tell us another story. I know you have a few dozen up your sleeve. Whatever. I'm always working on different things. Right now I'm working on Helen of Troy. And that's going to be a collection of like five different stories, I think is what I have now. And so that's kind of a fun thing for me to start. But you know, I love live performance. You are a beautiful writer. And I always wish I was a writer, but I really just do more storytelling and it just that's that's where I'm happiest. So I'm gonna stay there. So that's gonna be my next my next one. So who knows? Maybe season two. Absolutely. <laughs> well yes, I, as I look at not work as being mostly inspired by Ireland and the Celtic fringe, I am also really excited to take us on voyages, take little coracles off to the Mediterranean, off to Africa, off to South America. I want us to, you know, get on our boats. And and voyage yeah. off on our Imrav to go to you know find new frontiers. So um, whenever you're ready yeah. to bring us some new stories, we'll we'll voyage together. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the invitation. I am so excited to hear your podcast series. It's going to be really really magical. And so I really loved tonight. Thank you yes. so much for having me. The closest best thing to sitting around the fire together. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, and how to work with me as a writing coach and story healer, as well as my online writing community and courses at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at NotWorkPodcast and join our listeners group over on Facebook. Music on the show is provided by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Our intro music draws together a number of tunes dating back to the 18th century and is entitled The Cape Breton Salute. Find more about their music and shows at BillyandBeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.